0: welcome to the Origins Podcast. I'm your host, Lawrence Krauss. This is a special week for the podcast because uh, in November, the Origins Project Foundation hosted its first public event series, a series which had been long delayed because of the pandemic and the events associated with the pandemic. It was a two-night event, and we're going to release uh, the... uh, Videos of both nights, uh, and today is the first, uh, the first of those, which involves a dialogue between me and Richard Dawkins. Richard and I, as many of you know, have done many dialogues over the years. But what surprised us, uh, and this a case, was was uh, the novelty of of this particular dialogue. I wanted to talk to Richard about his book books to furnish a life, which is uh, uh, a series of writings he's made about books and other authors, and, and in- including myself and di- dialogues with myself. And we discussed uh, those things in detail and it was a complete departure from our previous dialogues. And And we both came off stage very excited and uh, and the response of the audience was was remarkable. It was filmed by uh, uh, the same film crew that made our film The Unbelievers, so you'll be able to see it with uh five cameras and high def and it's been edited so it's a very special visual edition of the podcast as well as an audio version and i hope you'll enjoy it and and find it a fresh new take uh, uh, uh on on ideas that matter to both of us and uh so please enjoy this dialogue between me and richard dawkins that was held in november at the beautiful orpheum theater in uh in Phoenix, and, uh, and you can see once again from the images how beautiful the theater is. It's appropriate also that at the same time as I, I announced this dialogue with Richard Dawkins, that uh, I announced that we are, the Origins Project Foundation, is going to release the general public, open up to the general public on March 23rd, uh, bookings for our newest trip to the Galapagos Islands, uh, made famous, of course, by Richard Dawkins and we'll have several guest speakers as part of this uh, uh, voyage to Ecuador and the Galapagos Islands, including Franz Duvall and Elizabeth Colbert, who've both been on this podcast before. Were both remarkable in their uh, breadth of knowledge in a variety of areas, and, and attendees on that eight-day-long cruise and, and uh, land trip will be able to spend time with both of, of these authors, uh, myself and, uh, and some other special guests. So I hope you'll consider joining us again March 23rd is when um, bookings will go on sale for the general public. Uh, previous uh, 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 travelers will be able to get an advance uh, booking before that. And uh, I hope we'll, we'll get to meet many of you uh, there as well. The boat is holds only 36 people, so it'll be a limited size, which is what we like to do, so people can have an intimate experience. And we have a lot of special events planned for that period. So I hope you'll consider going to the Origins Project website, uh, www.originsproject.org, and uh, and and look at the trip, and consider joining it. And of course, I hope you'll consider subscribing to the podcast through uh, Critical Mass, our Substack site, because uh, the, the funds from subscriptions go to uh, supporting all the efforts of the Origins Project Foundation, um, as well as the podcast. And of course, you can uh, watch the pod, this podcast uh, without any advertising breaks by watching it on, on, on uh, Critical Mass and uh, or you can watch it of course on YouTube as one of our many YouTube subscribers or listen to it on any podcast listening site either way I think you'll find this new dialogue between me and Richard Dawkins or at least I hope you'll find it a breath of fresh air as I did take care Thank you. Thank you. One second. Thank you. I gotta take a picture. Come on. Don't move. <laughs> okay. Thank you so very, very much. It's it, it's so great. It it is a wonderful night. It's so for me. Can you turn the lights up a little bit so I can see people? It's it's uh it's wonderful for me to see you here. It's great to be back in Phoenix. It's been a long time, and uh, and it's wonderful to see people from all over the place. And I want to thank you. We uh, we uh, met in, in in earlier before the show. People have come here from from Seattle, San Diego, Tucson, Texas, Denver. I don't know where else, but where. where? Michigan. Everywhere. They came from everywhere. Every state, every country is represented in this room right now, which is amazing. And, and Richard and I got to spend, I'm really particularly happy that we have a lot of students here. And, we, and Richard and I got to spend, uh, yeah, it's great. It's, it really means a lot to us. There we go. Now I can see people. I, um, we got to spend time with a, with a number of student groups beforehand, and it was nice to get a chance to chat with them. We got to spend time with a wonderful teacher, Zach King, who brought his, his students. And and and, uh, and it, it means a lot to me, because when, when I used to teach at ASU, Zach used to come in as a student and ask me questions in my office. And it, it's so nice to see that he's inspiring a whole new generation of students. It's really... It's really and, um, but we... Um, we also, that we got to speak to, uh, and, and, it, and it's a, and I should say it's Apache Junction High School, right? Just to make clear. Okay. We met students from Bioscience. Let's, come on. Okay. Cesar Chavez. Ah, okay. You win. And what other schools? I forgot. Shout it out. Which high school? There we go. Any others? And you? And a university in Chile, right? Okay. Well, that's, that wins too. Um, okay. Well, thank you for being here. And I hope you'll have, uh, we'll have a fun night. And, um, as I say, it means a lot to me. And, and I'll talk about the Origins board who've worked so hard to, to make this happen. Uh, it's been a long time coming with a lot of work and a lot of people. What, before I want to start talking, obviously what I want to do is, is introduce my special friend and guest tonight. Um, Richard Dawkins he, he, Richard is I first met Richard um, probably 15 to 20 years ago uh, when I asked a nasty question when he was lecturing and um, and he said it wasn't the average nasty question and so we started to talk and, we, and, and it was a meeting and, and we had a chat later and had a, uh, had a dialogue which later on led to a, a piece by the two of us in, in Scientific American but it also led to us being asked by Stanford to do a dialogue together and Richard at the time uh, was adamant about the fact that we didn't want a moderator because um, he said they only get in the way and I agree with him actually. And so we tried it out and it turned out to work and if some of you have seen the, the unbelievers and other things you know we've, we've done a lot of dialogues around the world and I'll talk about that in a second but Richard Dawkins does not really need an introduction He's certainly probably the, not only one of the most famous scientists in the world, but one of the most accomplished science writers. I was going to say popularizers of science, and that's uh, that, that's true. But his, um, his book, The Selfish Gene, is, in my opinion, perhaps the best piece of science writing that's ever been written by anyone in history. And uh, I know it's had a huge influence, rightfully so. And it's, in my life... Getting to know Richard has had a big influence, and and, uh, it's been a pure joy. And I'm going to call him out right now. Richard. (laughs) (laughs) This is not our first rodeo, and... um, and we have done, as you've seen, we've done dialogues around the world, and Richard in particular, but my two... It's, we we never want to do the same one. It's kind of tempting. And so we try and find different things to talk about. And um, what I thought I'd do tonight as a way to guarantee, in some sense, that we talk about new things, is to talk about... is to base it on one of Richard's two new books. And um, this is a book... Uh, by Richard, called "Books Do Furnish a Life," reading and writing about science, and it's uh, and books do furnish a life. I know that one of the students early on asked me and Richard what what got us interested in science, and certainly for both of us, I, I know for me it was reading books by scientists that really made all the difference, and it's one of the reasons why I write books now. And it's a lovely book, and I and it prompted me to have some thoughts, and I thought we'd therefore base this discussion on. More or less uh, to start with, at least on that book because it's new, and, it, and what it is is a, com, uh, a compilation of s- ar- some articles by Richard in the, uh, about other books, about uh, individuals, and also uh, transcripts of conversations that Richard has had. And uh, I have to say, um, one with me, and 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 then also the after. He was kind enough to write the, as many of you know, the afterword to my book. Uh, a Universe from Nothing, and that's in here as well. Um, but that's not the reason we're talking about this book, by the way. Um, uh, but it's about, it's about science and culture. And, and, and I think that's a perfect way to, to begin this, because that's what really the Origins Project Foundation is all about. It's about science and culture. But the fact that science is a part of our culture, not, ju- not just a small part of our culture, but its central part of our culture. The other day i was I was speaking to, to some group or, and, and it occurred to me I never thought it before but life is an experiment. when I realized if life is an experiment it, then then science should be a central part of life because it's a central part of every experiment. our whole existence is is trial and error learning how to make it through our our brief time in our moment in the sun and and While you are a selected set of people who, I think, recognize the importance of science and culture, that's one of the central themes, and it's certainly a central theme of this book. So I I thought I'd begin... um, The first part of this book, in fact, is about the literature of science. And you make a really interesting point that too often science science writing is not thought of literature. And, in fact, you point out that uh, the, the Nobel Prize in Literature has been given a few times to... It's almost always given to novelists and fiction writers, almost uniquely, which I'll ask you to comment on. But a few times it's also been given to non-fiction writers, uh, Winston Churchill, for example. Um, And and, uh, you mentioned someone who is... It's never been given to a real scientist, you say. The only arguable exception is Henri Bergson. I have to ask you why that's an exception. Henri Bergson was a philosopher, I
1: suppose, who counts as a scientist in many ways, and, and he's regarded as a scientist, was regarded as a scientist in his own time. Um, he believed that life could be explained by what he called an élan vital, and Julian Huxley satirized that by saying he could explain the motion of a train by saying it was, it was driven by élan locomotif, <laughs> <laughs> it explains absolutely it, nothing. Yeah. That's the point. Um, and and sim- sim- similarly, Elan Vital explains nothing, whatever. Um, you have to be scientific, you have to be reductionist, actually. You have, to, you have to explain what it is about life that actually drives it, actually makes it do the things that it does. Just to sort of repeat that, it, that it, there's a life force. That's um, is, is, that's, that is not science, it's bad science. And. Um, I, I think he's the only recipient of a Nobel Prize in um, in literature who, who is classified by people as a
0: scientist. But well, now, Bertrand Russell... Is, yeah, I was going to say, Bertrand Russell isn't mentioned in your book, and well, Bertrand Russell I classify as a sort of a scientist. Bertrand
1: no? Russell was a brilliant mathematician and uh, had a, certainly a scientific point of view. He had a scientific way of thinking. Yeah. Um, and uh, Bertrand Russell would... Feel at home in any scientific gathering, of course. Yeah. So, so um, I would call him a scientist, but, but
0: yeah, yes. I was surprised he it wasn't in the book yeah. I, he's much more of a scientist than i Yeah, mentioned. yeah. Oh, he certainly but is. But it is true, to, fair to say that he didn't, he didn't win the Nobel Prize in Literature for his science writing. However, he really no. wrote it. He was a, for the work he wrote about peace and and, and, and history and yes. and, and, so that, and, yeah. and philosophy, which somehow. Um classifies as being worth the Nobel Prize, where science but, doesn't matter. But, I
1: don't but isn't on. it a bit odd the way we classify books into fiction and non-fiction? I mean, isn't that rather a curious division? Yeah. Um, why would the whole... Even if 50% of
0: literature is about things that never happened? <laughs> and, and, <laughs> but might. But then, you know, that's what science is about, it's often things that might happen. True. And, and, and yes. that, that's, yeah. you know, as a theoretical physicist... Yeah. I've written about thing, many things that never happen. I have to say, but that's a. Um, the uh, uh, I, I have to ask you this. For for many years in physics, I was a nominator for the Nobel Prize, but and it's used to, it's supposed to be secret. But I when you, t- when, not not that I was a nominator. Who you the, the 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 process of what goes on is supposed to be secret. You're not supposed to know who's been nominated, although they often advertise the people in peace for some reason. But I have to ask you this because when I when I was reading this. The first thing I wondered whether was when I started to think of what piece of literature might be worth a Nobel Prize in literature. I thought of the Selfish Gene, and yeah. I wondered, do you know if, any, y- y- you know, uh, do you know if you've ever been nominated? I was going to ask you.
1: I think I probably should not answer that question. Okay, okay.
0: <laughs> I I was only able to do physics, otherwise. Yes. I well, I think you you've gathered what from my yeah exactly is, okay yes, you you gave the answer. that's good well i'll I'll keep my fingers crossed. Um, you give a piece of science writing in this book, which is by actually it, it means a lot to me. It's by Sir James Jeans, who was one of the scientists I read as a young person who t- He wrote a book called Physics and Philosophy," which turned me on to physics actually, and for a while uh, to philosophy, but i over I grew out of that um, uh, and uh, anyway. So he wrote a book in 1930 called The Mysterious Universe, which was a big, big bestseller, at least in in Britain. And it's interesting, and I will give a little plug, because as you know, because you've read it and commented and helped me with it, I have a new book coming out um, next year, which is in the United Kingdom, is called The Known Unknowns, and in the U.S. it's called The Edge of Knowledge, because The Known Unknowns is a quote from Donald Rumsfeld and, and the, my U.S. publishers felt that it wasn't appropriate to use it. But, um, but they asked me, but, but the British publisher who I first talked about this asked me if, if I could write a book in the, in the spirit of the mysterious universe, which, which I then read. But here's a, here's a passage from it. If you really don't think of science as literature, listen to this. Standing on our microscopic fragment of a grain of sand, we attempt to discover the nature and purpose of the universe which surrounds our home in space and time. Our first impression is something akin to terror. We find the universe terrifying because of its vast meaning meaningless distances. Terrifying because its inconceivably long vistas of time which dwarf human history to the twinkling of an eye. Terrifying because of our extreme loneliness and because of the material insignificance of our home in space, a millionth part of a grain of sand, out of all the sea sand in the world. But above all else, we find the universe terrifying because it appears to be indifferent to life like our own. Emotion, ambition, and achievement, art and religion, all seem to equally foreign to its plan. Which is just a beautiful piece of writing. And and um, did you read that book? When, uh, when
1: something that, that's something that, that I often meet when people... Um, uh, worry about the scientific view of the universe and, and of life as well, actually, that it is cold and empty and terrifying. And in many ways it is, but so what? <laughs> um, that's the way it is. You better phase up to yeah. it. <laughs> you, 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 can't, um, you can't say, oh, it can't be true because
0: I don't want it to be true. Um, well, you can, and a lot of people do. I, 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 <laughs> I think someone was running for governor in, in Arizona who I think, <laughs> I think thought that. I thought, I, I, but anyway. but, but li- <laughs> Okay, well, I wasn't going to talk politics, but I violated that. Um, but life is terrifying, too. But that's what part of... It saddens me in a way because that's sort of what makes life exciting, is the fact that you'd never know, if, if you're living an interesting life, you'd never know what tomorrow's going to bring. And for some people that's terrifying, but for, for, for others it should be exhilarating, because who would want to know what what was going to happen? I mean, who would want to know what, what everything that was going to yeah, happen I, I in don't life.
1: think I don't think that's the most terrifying. I mean, the more, more terrifying is the feeling that we are the product, possibly on this planet alone, of... Yeah. Um, the, the blind laws of physics of milliards and milliards and milliards of particles playing their infinite game of billiards and billiards and billiards. It, it, um, it's uh, and yet th- those blind forces acting through the Darwinian agency have managed to produce, after a period of a, four billion years, produce us. I mean, I think that's an astonishing
0: thought. It, 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 it am- is, it, 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 but it's sh- it, but. I think it depends on how you're wired. For me, it's, uh, it's exhilarating to think that I'm here by accident. Oh, yes. And, and because it just means that every moment is such a lucky accident. Yes. And we're lucky to be here. Yes.
1: And, well, be, by accident in one sense. In, a, in another sense, not. Because natural selection is very much not an accident. But the fact that you and I are here, Yeah. everybody in here, is, is, a, is a, an, an accident of stupendous magnitude. Yeah. I mean, just think of the the, the luck of... Particular sperm that had to, that, that cons- I mean, out of, out of millions. Yeah. You know the Aldous Huxley poem about, about that? If you can remember it, I love to hear you recite poetry. <laughs> a million, million spermatozoa, all of them alive, out of their cataclysm, but one poor Noah dare hope to survive. And of that billion minus one might have chanced to be Shakespeare. Another Newton, a new Dunn. But the one was me. <laughs> Shame to have ousted your betters thus, <laughs> taking arc while the others remained outside. Better for all of us, froward homunculus, if you'd quietly died. <laughs>
0: <laughs> See, I told you, it's great. I could just listen to your website poetry. The... That actually is a good segue because one of the, um, the the statements you've made, and and in fact is a central part of one of your book, is that is, the, is that science is the poetry of reality, and and which is a beautiful a beautiful sentiment. Do you want to elaborate on that at all? Or? Well, I think it's, it ties in with what you were talking about earlier.
1: It's part of cu- culture, the the, the 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 thought of the. Vastness of space and the improbability of life beginning at all, and given that life taking the course that it does, that's a supremely poetic thought. And the quotation from James Jeans expresses it very well. Um, almost anything ever written by Carl Sagan, you could take as the poetry of reality. Yeah, absolutely. Um,
0: the cosmos- Any others? Some of the. Uh, uh, we'll maybe get to some of it because. Uh, and you actually talk about several people you admire a lot. I know you talk about Peter Medawar. What, what do you tell people about Peter Medawar? Well, because Pete, they may not have. He wrote. Yeah. I first knew him about with a book he wrote called "Memoirs of a Thinking, Thinking Radish. Radish." That's right. yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, Peter Medawar was a Nobel Prize-winning uh, medical scientist. He was trained as a biologist at Oxford, like me, and he became a medical scientist. and He was very, very big in immunology, but he was also a superb essayist, a wonderful style. Uh, not so much a poetic style; it was more a kind of lofty, patrician, elegant style. Um, one of my favorite of his essays is a book review of *The Phenomenon of Man* by Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, who was, who was touted as a great French intellectual at one time. And um, it's a wonderful—it's it's the most—it's the best negative book review ever written, I think. It's, it's mm-hmm. um, just to give, I can quote one, one phrase, I think. He, he asked the question, how, how have people come to be taken in by Tayar Deshada? Because many people were. And he says, um, we have to remember that the spread of tertiary education has produced a large population of people of highly cultured tastes who have been educated Far beyond their capacity to undertake analytical thought. <laughs> 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 That's a typical piece of Medowa wit. I, mean, I just remembered an- an- another one. He began a lecture by saying, I hope I shall not be thought ungracious if I say at the outset that nothing on earth would have induced me to attend the kind of lecture you probably
0: think I'm about to give. <laughs> I love that, yeah well, I hope they, yeah well, well, yeah, exactly, and I hope we surprise surprised, but you know what i don 't know if you remember, but you were one of the people that take, was taken in by Pierre Chardin oh yes, you? we talked about it in the unbelievers, yes, in
1: the movie. I was uh, I was a student, and I read this book, and it is um prose poetry it's uh, beautiful, it 's translated from the French, so I presume that it 's the same in the French um, it's it kind of evokes a kind of dreamy feeling of of, of oneness with the universe, that that kind of thing. Um, I think Medow was perhaps a bit too negative about it. I mean, it, it is good prose poetry, but
0: it, it
1: doesn't actually say anything
0: but it, sensible. But in terms of, but I I thought it was it, it it was what woke woke. I don't want to use the word woke. Um, <laughs> it's what caused you to rethink your own view of religion, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, well, yes, I mean, I, 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 w- what it caused me to realize was that I was, that I was an idiot. Um, <laughs> and and um, I, I use that example sometimes when, when people say, uh, it's no good telling people that their religious belief is stupid because they'll just re- react negatively to it. You have to woo them. In fact, it was what, that, what you that said. That was when, my question when we first when met. When we first met, that, that was your point. Um, and it's a very good point, uh, uh, but, uh, but uh, in counter to that, I say, well, I didn't mind being told I was stupid, in effect, um, because I was, <laughs> and so I changed my mind. And I think we all need to change our mind, um, as I think John Maynard Keynes said. Um, what did he say? When, when, the, when the evidence changes, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? <laughs>
0: Well, that would, be, that, that's, that would be a wonderful thing if that happened nowadays. It should be a mantra for it. It should be a meme, actually, yeah. is what it should be. Yeah. And uh, speaking of memes, I told those high school students who were, I mean, probably already impressed with Richard already, but then I told them, this is the man that invented meme. And I could see their eyes go, wow. <laughs> but they didn't know what it meant. <laughs> <laughs> um. Speaking of science writers, actually, Richard and I did a event last night, and a number of the people are here. We talked about... Richard actually did a reading from from the, this book. But um, we talked about a wonderful scientist who was also a, a, a science writer, Fred Hoyle, Sir Fred Hoyle. And he wrote what is arguably, I think you and I agree, perhaps one of the best science fiction stories ever written, called The Black Cloud. Um, talk, tell... Tell us, explain to the people a little bit what the story is about, because I well, want to well, um, has anybody read the Black Cloud? One,
1: one, one or two. You should. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's um, it, it, it's about uh, a, a a cloud of of gas which appears and, and and goes into orbit around the sun, and it it causes great havoc and destruction uh, because it blots out the sun and things like that, and um, uh, the first thing that I noticed about it, which is I, I, the, the point I made in the, in the uh, foreword to the book that I wrote, what was that you learn a lot of science from yeah. this book. So it's not just a good story. You learn a lot of science. And the first thing you learn is that sometimes scientific discoveries are made from two completely different uh, converging sources. In this case, the black cloud was first spotted uh, by a, t- a telescope, by a a young astronomer who who noticed a bit of the sky being being blotted out. So that was the observational evidence. Entirely independently um, from this observational evidence in California, in Cambridge, in England, um, a mathematician um, deduced from movements of the planets, planets were in the wrong place, Exactly the way, by the way, the the planet Neptune was 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 discovered. discovered. Um, So planets were in the wrong place. And so he calculated that there must exist an object, a foreign object, at a certain position, and sent a telegram to uh, the... It it was foggy in England, of course, and so he couldn't look look out (laughs) into the sky. Um, So they sent a telegram to, to California saying, you know does there exist so-and-so coordinates as this this right declination, that? Um, and um, when the Californians read the telegram, having just seen this thing, the words of the telegram seemed to swell to a gigantic size, a magnificent yeah. piece of drama there. So two different ways of, uh, of, of discovering the same thing. That's, that was point one. Then uh, when they started to work out the nature of the black cloud, namely that it was an actually a living organism of, of far superhuman capabilities, the process by which they worked out that it was living was a beautiful lesson, object lesson, in the way scientists work by making predictions and then testing them. And then another bit of science that I learned when I read the book as a, as a student was uh, that... Um, Information theory, the, the idea that information is a commodity which can be transduced from one medium to another and it still retains its, its quality. Because the, uh, there's a dramatic scene where there's a, a young woman pe- pianist who plays a Beethoven sonata to The Black Cloud where they worked out that it's a living thing. And it absolutely adores Beethoven, um, although it obviously hasn't got ears but it doesn't matter because the information goes out in, uh, in the form of um, pulses or something to the, to the black cloud. Um, and so it can still appreciate Beethoven, except it, it asks if, if they would play it, at, at, I don't know, 10 times the speed, because it, it's too slow. <laughs> um, it, it, uh, and then finally, the, 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 the book ends with what the black cloud calls the deep problems, which sends chippers down my spine. The deep problems are, kind of thing Lawrence writes about, what is the origin of the universe? Uh, why do the laws of physics have exactly the form that they do? The, why are the fundamental constants what they are? And um, so I've, I've always been intrigued by the deep problems, although not being a physicist, I can't really understand them. Well, now,
0: yeah, that's true. Um, <laughs> uh, but why? there's a few things that come to mind when you say that. You read it as a student. Why didn't that want to make you make you want to be a physicist or an astronomer?
1: It's a it's a it's a biological book. I mean, the the, the black it's bi- it is the a biological cloud book. Is a, the black cl- yeah. cloud is a is a biological, biological entity. F- in fact, one, one of the questions they ask is, um, why do you, the black cloud, consider yourself to be a single in, a single individual? Because you're this huge diffuse y- yeah. cloud of gas w- with radio communicating within the cloud. And the the cloud kind of makes the point that if all of us could communicate telepathically, brain to brain, with the same speed as we can communicate within our own brains, then we would cease to be individuals, separate individuals. We would be one great big collective individual. You know what we'd
0: be? But you won't know it when I tell you. The Borg. You know what the Borg is? I know you. I don't. Know. I don't take the allusion. I'm sorry to say. <laughs> <laughs> but you, and but the, the other thing that's neat about the fact that it was foggy in the book and they and they had to go is that apparently that was exactly what happened with the discovery of Neptune. I didn't. That there know were that. British astronomers and French astronomers who I think it was French predicted it. Predicted it, mm-hmm. and the British wanted to look, and it was cloudy, and the discovery was made in France for that reason. Yes. Yeah, because so <clears throat> now. The, I wanted to pick up on that, and it, it is a, there are a few reasons for why I want to talk about mm-hmm. it. One is, and I, I, I told you last time I was going to allude to this. Um, so when you write about this book, you say he, that Hoyle makes uh, only one scientific mistake, in your opinion. The uh, eponymous superintelligence of the black cloud is asked about the origin of the first member of its species, and it replies... I would not agree that there was ever a first member. And um, and then you say, Never mind the astronomers, I must protest as a biologist. Even if Hoyle and his colleagues had been right that the universe had been in a steady state forever, the same could not sensibly became for the organized and apparently purposeful complexity <clears throat> that life epitomizes. Galaxies may spring spontaneously into existence, and by the way, they don't. They I mean they do, but they take they take longer than life. But but complex life cannot. That is pretty what, what complexity means. So I, I, I get your point. But the interesting thing to me when it hit me is I remembered actually from our dialogue in, in I think that was recorded in, in the, the Unbelievers, I think it's in Sydney, Australia, I can't remember, that someone asked about the first fish or something like that. And you, and you said there was no first fish. Yeah, okay, look, stop, 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 stop. <laughs> okay.
1: Stop. Uh, okay. Um, f- first, as, as you probably know, Fred Hoyle uh, was one of the, was probably the leading proponent of the steady state theory of the universe, which said so there, w- there was no origin of the universe. It's, it's been around forever, and matter is continuously created. So when the uh, scientists in the novel asked the Black Cloud about the origin of its own kind, its own species, it said, "I wouldn't agree that there ever was an origin." Um, this was one in the eye, as the astronomers said. For the for the for the Big Bang idea, it
0: was it was it was a, Fred Hoyle was making a joke that it's in favor of the steady state theory. Fred Hoyle bu- uh, strongly proposed that the universe was mm. it, it was eternal and in what's called a steady state that it never really changed, and so he invented the term Big Bang to make fun of the idea, and it it caught on. And in this book, uh, the, the basically black cloud says the universe has been around forever, more yeah. or less. So. Um,
1: then I protested, I protest about his saying that I would not agree that there ever was a first member of my species, because that suggests that complex life, supremely complex life, which is what the black cloud is, just happened. And it's all very well saying that matter can come into existence spontaneously, because that was the steady state theory. And uh, There's nothing wrong with it, except it wasn 't true, but, but, it, but it was, it was a, a, a very a very interesting uh, theory that 's just matter coming into existence, but matter coming into existence is a very different thing yeah. from complexity complexity of, the, of our kind of life, let alone the black cloud kind of life that doesn 't happen it cannot happen that 's what complexity means. It means improbability on a gigantic scale. And evolution builds up to that gigantic scale by slow, gradual, incremental steps. That's what makes it possible. That's the whole point of Darwinism. And so that's my very
0: strong objection to what the black cloud said. But I thought I'd give you a chance to explain because it's a neat bit of object lesson in evolution why there was never a first fish. Well, okay. Uh, now that, that that's quite that's a different thing. It is, um, but it's the same sense. But there's a yes, very different reason.
1: Uh, people of, often say, "Well, who was the first human?" The, the very, I mean, the first member of the species Homo sapiens. And my answer to that is, there never was a first member of the species Homo sapiens because uh, any individual that you choose to pick, uh, say, um, I don't know, two hundred million, sorry, two hundred thousand years ago. Um, must have had parents and its parents would have been classified if taxonomists had been around at the time it would have been classified in the same species every animal ever born was a member of the same species as its parents and its children so uh, some people think that's a problem with, with how you can get new species because the intermediates are all dead and therefore we don't see them but if by some magic wand waving, every animal that had ever lived could somehow be magic back into existence. It would be impossible to draw dividing lines between one species and its ancestor. Then, so there never was a first human, there never was a first fish in that sense. But, of course, that doesn't mean that it didn't have predecessors. It doesn't mean it didn't have progenitors. It had parents. Yeah. It's just that they, were, they would have been classified as being the same species as, as it. Yeah.
0: Okay, now, and I think I think it was an, I thought it would be a good point to illustrate the difference between yeah, what they exactly. meant and what you meant yeah. by the same statement. But I, but it also gives me it's and it's self-serving. But I'm asking the question, so I can do that. Um, uh, at least right now, <coughs> when you ask, you can. Um, it turns out that in fact, in cosmology, in my area of cosmology, people actually discuss now exactly the likelihood that something like the black cloud could come into existence spontaneously. And the argument is, um, well, it really comes related to the the universe from nothing. The fact that quantum mechanics allows things to spontaneously arise from nothing, particles to emerge from empty space, etc. And if, as seems to be the likely case, our universe the future of our universe is is eternal, then you could ask what's the probability that life would evolve, which is a very complicated process, versus what's the probability that spontaneously, and I mean spontaneously, a solar system would appear out of empty space due to the laws of quantum mechanics and life forms would appear and you and I would appear on this stage and all these people and we weren't, didn't exist here five seconds ago. And it sounds ridiculous, but it's actually discussed as when you, the problem with infinity is that, of course, probabilities become really weird. But some people would argue that if you actually look at the likelihood of a long, complicated process of evolution taking four billion years versus the likelihood that in an infinitely long universe, we'd spontaneously rise. Because in an infinitely long universe, Everything that can happen will happen. That it's much more probable that we didn't exist a half an hour ago, and and there isn't that crazy. Uh,
1: as Bertrand Russell said, we might have come into existence five minutes ago, complete with holes in our socks. <laughs> exactly. Um, yes, I mean the, that that kind of argument is apt to leave a Darwinian cold. Um, it, it's it's because it's it's not just that you and I could be sitting here, yeah. and, and, but. I could have a green mustache. Yeah. And,
0: and, and, and you could be standing on your head. And, and, and it's, it's. And it all will happen. Yeah. And, and this whole night would happen again and again and again with one word different. Yes. It's really. Re- it's, and I've gone to yeah. s- physics conferences and people talk seriously about this.
1: Well, yes. It, I cannot. I'm um, tempted to quote the poet Yeats You are still wrecked among heathen dreams. Um, it's. It negates the entire point of of everything that I've lived for, which is Darwinism. Yeah, okay. Um, it's and that doesn't mean it's not true, but um, the whole point about Darwinian evolution is that it explains how you get yeah. improbability of a certain kind. It things work. Um, birds fly because they, they they're well designed to fly. Um, you don't get um, all the impossible f- freaks that, that don't fly because their wings are, are, are well, they're, they're upside down or something like that. Where in the, your argument about everything that can happen will somewhere out there there's a cricket team to beat the Australians. Um, <laughs> it 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 um, it sort of. It's a nihilistic kind of idea. It makes science impossible to yeah. do, really. Yeah, and, in fact,
0: that's the point I want to make. Yeah. And I, think I wanted to make it, because I think, and I've argued this at meetings, the reason that one can do science, and, you, and in fact, you're, in your career early on, it was really doing probabilistic calculations with yeah. natural selection, <laughs> which is really what you started yes. to do in your research, is that, is that one probability is an incredibly misunderstood thing in our society, but you can do it if you understand what the probabilities are, or you can calculate them or estimate them, if you know the all possible outcomes, then you can then you can do something. But when you have infinities, then then you can't then no, then nothing makes sense. You can come up with anything you want, and that's why it really isn't science, in my opinion. Because if you argue, you don't know what the you don't know what the the the, the weight function is. You don't you can you just guess, and if you guess. What the probabilities of, of different infinite things are, you can come up with any answer, yeah. and the whole point of science just sort of disappears. Well, um, perhaps I could ask you a question. Uh,
1: um, I, I um, um, it, um, sort of I'm, I'm aware of different interpretations of quantum theory, um, the Copenhagen interpretation and the many worlds interpretation. And my my colleague David Deutsch yeah. is a great proponent of the Hugh Everett many worlds interpretation. Um, and so, um, well, perhaps you, you could, I mean, explain what, what okay, that sure. is, because then it's very, it's like very it. related to what we've just been talking
0: yeah, about. Yeah, it is, in a, in a way. In a way, although in quantum mechanics, you actually can calculate probabilities, which is what's really yeah. makes it science. But the idea is that quantum mechanics, the, the central premise of quantum <laughs> mechanics uh, can be stated as saying that systems at, a quant, at the fundamental scales where quantum mechanics really operates, not the classical scale where we live, are doing many things at the same time and 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 uh, it, even though that seems classically ridiculous it it, it happens and it 's true in fact now it 's the basis of quantum computers that an electron which behaves like it 's spinning before you measure it is not just spinning in one direction it 's spinning in all directions at the same time until you measure it now and, and measurement becomes the key part of quantum mechanics. People argue, therefore that if all of these states are existing and you make a measurement and it turns out there's a probability that you'll measure its spin going this way or a probability that you measure its spin going that way. And we can calculate those probabilities in quantum mechanics. But once you measure it, it's doing doing that. So the idea is, what happened to all the other possibilities? And this argument developed by a guy named Hugh Everett is that reality branches every time you make a measurement one possibility becomes real. But all those other universes where it was doing something else are never accessible to you, but they exist. And every time you make a measurement, it branches. And and, (laughs) and so you basically get an infinite number of universes branching into an infinite number of universes, one of which is the universe we're all in at this time.
1: So, Schrodinger's cat, in some universes it's dead, and in
0: other universes it's alive. Uh, in principle, when you, the Schrodinger's cat experiment is a, it's not an experiment. No one does it. Thought experiment. But um, <laughs> at least I don't think anyone's done it. Is, is a cat is in a box with a, a radioactive device and if, if the device goes off, the, a bullet goes and kills the cat. But, but quantum mechanically, you could think that the cat is both alive and dead until you make them, until you open the box. It's not a, it's not the best analogy, but it's, it, it made well, Schrodinger it's, famous. It's, it's Schrodinger- did it as a, as a way of satirizing? Yeah, he, saw, he, yes. he, he did it. Um, he did it as a way of satirizing. I saw
1: there was a wonderful, a wonderful cartoon in the New Yorker where oh, yeah. he saw in, in a in a a veterinary surgeon's waiting room, and um, uh, the, and the nurse is coming to one of the people sitting there and saying, "About your cat, Mister Schrodinger, I have some good news and some bad news." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes. By the way, a, 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 another point I've, I've heard: if you're playing Russian roulette. Uh huh. You shoot yourself. That you've got a one, one in six chance. Of, you know it's safe because I, if you die, then you're not in that universe. But yeah, in it, in five of the six universes, um, yeah, that you know, in five you're alive. Six universe, yeah, and so you'll always be alive
0: um, in, in some universe. Yeah. Don't, don't don't try this at home. Don't try it at home. <laughs> and it's but but part of this. The reason I want to get to it is that part of it. Demonstrates a fundamental misunderstanding of quantum mechanics. That, because when you get those kind of absurd arguments, when science leads to absurd arguments, sometimes, as we'll talk about, sometimes it just means you're not thinking the right way. But sometimes it means you're not, that you're interpreting the science incorrectly. And in fact, in my new book, I I talk a lot about this quantum mechanical aspect. That whole notion of the interpretation of quantum mechanics is not just in my opinion, but I remember learning it from a a scientific colleague of mine when I was at Harvard who was much smarter than me. (laughs) Who's now uh, passed away, Sidney Coleman. Is the wrong way of thinking because the world is quantum mechanical. So why do you try, you should not try and interpret a world that's quantum mechanical in terms of a classical kluge because you're always going to come up with some weird nonsensical picture. The correct thing to do is think of the interpretation of classical mechanics to describe the apparent the, the illusion that is the reality we live in, in terms of the fundamental theory, instead of trying to analyze the fundamental theory in terms of the illusion. Because when you do that, you'll always come up with weird nonsense, with the spooky action at a distance that bothered Einstein so much about, yeah. class, about quantum mechanics. So, so I, I, I bristle when I read books about the interpretation of quantum mechanics, and people still write them about the many worlds interpretation. It's... It's much ado about nothing, in my opinion, re- literally. R- I- Richard Feynman said, shut up and calculate. Yeah, exactly. And, but, but, interestingly enough, Richard F- the, 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 the fact that the quantum systems are doing many things at the same time, as I said, is the basis of quantum computers. Because classical computers are based on bits, either ones or zeros, and you manipulate those ones and zeros in ways that, that allow you to do logical... Progressions that allow you to do calculations, but if you if if you do it with quantum particles, you know you can think of an electron as spinning this way as one and spinning this way as a zero, but the electron is doing many things at the same time. So if you could uh, do a calculation without disturbing the electron in the middle, the electron would be doing a huge number of calculations at the same time because it's spinning in many different directions. And therefore, a quantum computer could do something a classical computer can't do, which is to do many different calculations at the same time and therefore potentially do calculations that would take longer than the history of the universe for a classical computer in a quantum computer. That's why so much money is being spent on quantum computers right now and the idea of doing it. But Feynman, who was one of the first people to propose thinking of quantum computers, did it for another reason. He said, I'm a classical And as he said, and other people said, if you think you understand quantum mechanics, you don't. Okay, Because you can never intuitively picture quantum mechanics because we're we're not quantum beings. We only live in a classical world. And he said, if I could invent a quantum computer, the quantum computer's, the whole basis of its thinking, if you wish, would be quantum mechanical. And maybe the quantum computer could explain quantum mechanics to me. (laughs) And I thought that was a wonderful argument. the other thing I want to mention, which is the interplay between, between um, literature and science, which happened personally, I did not know of the black cloud. I'd never read the story. But I was doing a physics problem. I, I was having a debate with a, a, another scientist who was much smarter than me, Freeman Dyson, uh, I, when we were at the Institute for Advanced Study together, where I spent a year there, about the future of life. Could He had argued, he'd written a beautiful paper, that life could persist forever in an eternal universe? The ultimate optimism. Can, you ask the question, can, can, a, can a species, can a, can a set of life forms persist forever if the universe is eternal? And he argued the answer was yes by a very typical Dysonian argument, which was tricky and, and, and amusing but naive. But, but, and, but in principle, right. And, I, I, we, I, I, and a colleague countered him and said, you're wrong. And we spent a a year debating this. And we came up with an example of why a a, a life form could not do what he said you do. And he said, what about the black cloud? Mm. And he talked to us about the black cloud and the black cloud would allow exactly what we said was impossible. We later on showed that it couldn't do what we wanted to do for other reasons. And he finally agreed, I think, we're wrong. But it was interesting to me that that invention, that science fiction invention... Allowed him to have an example that was and became a part of a real science and we both wrote, both wrote scientific papers about that very subject and the black cloud became a part of it so I think it was a nice example of that interplay but the last thing I I, I don't want to harp on that too much but you mentioned the deep problems and you and 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 you Kleining mentioned one of them is can something come from nothing which was my book but but um, do you there is a question of are there things that, that, that might never be addressable with science, that there'll be limits to knowledge. And, and people often talk about that. And I want to ask you if you think there, I mean this is just pure speculation, but do you suspect that there are physical questions that will never be resolvable because of limitations of our intellect?
1: Well, I don't think so, but I'm not qualified to say it. it, 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 I don't don't think think anyone is. Things things like um, where do the fundamental constants of physics come from, just those those numbers which physicists can measure but don't have a theory to account for, I don't see why they shouldn't eventually come to explain them all. Um, I, I suppose I'm an optimist about this. I think it's, in a way... I mean, it it could be that that the human brain, which is naturally selected to survive in Africa um, by hunting and gathering, um, in a way, it's absolutely amazing that, that such a brain can do quantum mechanics and do relativity and do higher mathematics. I mean, what on earth prepared this animal to do such things when, when all it really had to do was to f- find a, a kudu to hunt and to dig up some tapioca roots.
0: It, absolutely, <laughs> it's amazing. Actually, I forget where I was, but I was on a discussion where someone asked the question, do you think... It is amazing. I mean, it, certainly humans didn't evolve to do quantum mechanics, but we can. But someone asked the, the, the question, if I thought that was an evolutionary maladaptation, do you think this accidental fact that we can do science... Is a maladaptation or not? Well, in in one sense, and
1: it probably would never have helped our ancestors to survive and reproduce. Um, Not directly, anyway. Never mind about quantum theory, just just, um,
0: Pythagoras' theorem. I mean,
1: even that is... is,
0: um, You you don't think, you know, it helps you survive and reproduce to go into a party and say, hey, I'm a physicist. (laughs) Well, actually... (laughs) It doesn't. (laughs) That, I
1: mean, that, that in, in a sense has been suggested uh, um, that, that, that um, intelligence is sexy. And, and um, uh, so, uh, I mean, th- there's a biologist called Geoffrey Miller who um, has written a book suggesting that a lot of what's unique about humans is due to sexual selection, Darwin's other theory, the, the, the idea that what matters is not individual survival but reproductive success. And he's thinking in terms of success in in attracting mates so that um, the the human mind is a kind of mental peacock's tail uh, which is a display. um, I think it's quite plausible. Yeah. um, But our brain seems to have utterly overreached anything that could remotely useful in, in.
0: Uh, exactly, I mean I, as you know I'm very proud of the fact that nothing I've ever done in my research is remotely useful <coughs> and that's fine well I, I, I knew a, a mathematician
1: when I was a student who, who said that one, one of the mathematicians that he was studying his ambition was to discover a completely useless theorem
0: and then, <laughs> and then, and then some tiresome physicist came along and used it <laughs> that's what happens but actually, it's mathematics. The reason I, I don't... Bo- I agree with you completely. I don't think there's ever... People always say, well, there's got to be a limitation because the human mind. But the human mind has discovered mathematics. Yes. And language, by the way. And, and Noam Chomsky, whom I've had many dialogues, has pointed out that language allows it essentially an infinite number of progressions. Yep. But mathematics does. Yes. So the minute you do mathematics, you're not limited. There's an infinite set of possibilities that the human mind can explore. And therefore, I do not see... Just the fact that our hardware is evolved by evolution and is therefore limited, the software seems to be unlimited, and and I don't I, therefore I don't see I, I I if you had me if I ever had to guess I don't think there will ever be limits to what will, I mean there may be limits to what we can learn because of practical of practical things, but not because of some fundamental limits of our intellect. I think it's one of the most inspiring things I know
1: that that the human brain does have this almost unlimitedly open-ended capacity in its software. Yeah,
0: it's uh, me too. And it'd be great if more people used it. Um, <laughs> let, let's move on. You had a conversation with a service scientist, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Um, <laughs> no, he's a friend. Um, and we just did a podcast together, and, and it was a lot of fun. You should listen to it if you didn't. It was the last one that came out. But Neil, is, 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 like, is, is in America perhaps the most well-known um, science popularizer? And for many good reasons, I, I, I think. Um, what I liked about that dialogue, and I wanted to, to at least uh, talk a little bit about, was the very fact, and I, you say it, um, I think there's an, a kind of unwarranted pride in being bad at mathematics. You'll never hear anybody saying how proud they are at being ignorant of Shakespeare, but plenty of people will say they are proud of being ignorant of mathematics. Well, the ignorant of Shakespeare maybe maybe Donald Trump, but the rest of of um, <laughs> uh, uh, but the rest of people would be not. But plenty of people say they are proud of being ignorant of mathematics, and it's true. And I want to ask you, why do you think that? Of I, I mean, it shocks me. I mean, many people admit to being ignorant of mathematics, but some people view it as a as a. A badge of honor that they're somehow artistic or humanistic. Yes. And, and yes. I wonder where um, you think that comes from.
1: There's another um, quote from Peter Medawar, which I'm trying to. No, no I, I, I can't, I can't get it. Um, there was an uh, an editorial in the Daily Telegraph, which is a, which is a British um, conservative newspaper, and um, it was about. Um, the fact that some a scientist had done some research on on ignorance in people of, of science in 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 people, and they had discovered that I think it was 19% of the British population think it takes one month for the Earth to orbit the Sun, uh, and um, the and the editor of the Daily Telegraph put in brackets, doesn't it, Ed? <laughs> So he was, obviously he didn't really think that, but he was parading the fact that the editor of a major London newspaper um, could could even pretend to be ignorant of such
0: an elementary scientific fact. You know, it it come, I don't know if it happens so much in biology, but it really hit me when I first started to write, because every now and then you you read, well, you have to read reviews. Of, of your books and, um, but I, I read scientific reviews and I realized pick a, a, an economist like John, my era was John Kenneth Galbraith was a very, and, you, and you'd read a review in say the New Yorker or some literary magazine and the person would go on for 10 pages about this whether they understood it or not but a really good review of a science book is it boggled my mind I didn't understand it but it boggled my mind and the notion that somehow when it comes to science you're allowed to stop thinking. Yeah. That you're not allowed to that, that somehow you shouldn't puzzle. That that it's too much to ask you to puzzle through a scientific argument, but a historical argument, or a political argument, or an economic argument. That's okay for normal humans. But 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 heaven forbid that you that you be forced to actually Think through something. And it's somehow, I don't know where it comes from, if it's not, if it's in our educational system, that, or, or, or where. I, I, you know, and you're from Britain and i
1: Well, I, I think it boggles your mind is, is, is a not a disreputable thing to say, actually. It's, it isn't, but
0: don't, but don't you think the book deserves a little more discussion? Oh, than yes. That? I, no, I, I mean, that's what I, I'm yeah. saying. The best review is like half a page long. I didn't understand it, but it was amazing. Yeah. And, and that, if you wrote, if you wrote a review of a history book, and said, so, "You know, I didn't understand it, but it was amazing. Yes, it wouldn't, yeah. it wouldn't be in the New Yorker. That, that, that's true. Yeah. yeah that's true. Anyway, okay. Um, there's a wonderful, there's a wonderful chapter on the uncommon sense of science, and it and it, it involves Lewis Wolpert, another. It's, it's, bo- it's a book review. Yeah, a book that, review that, of a, yeah. a, He was a wonderful, another wonderful popularizer so- yeah. of, of science, and and I, it really hit home for me, because he. Because I've used an example that I thought it was pretty clever. And then I realized when I talk about stuff, it, I, it would take me 15 minutes to explain it. And in one sentence, he explains it. But it relates to something, that's an that experiment I want to do here, at least. And, and So I want everyone to take a deep breath and hold it in. Okay, I'm just, just keep holding it. Well, I just want to make some notes. Keep holding it. Keep holding it. You're not holding it. Okay, you let it out. Okay. Too many people are smiling. Well, th- that actually wasn't part of the experiment, but I wanted to see if you do it. But um, uh, it was sort of part of the experiment because it's a famous fact that I, I teach when I teach when I we used to teach undergraduates that every breath you take, you are breathing in some of the molecules of air of oxygen or particular that Julius Caesar breathed out in his dying breath when he said "Et to Brutus." and you can show that it's true it's not just true of that but you're breathing in the breath of almost everyone who ever lived you're breathing in the, the and I, I often would tell myself that I'm, you know when i'm re- working on physics and making nowhere that every breath i take i'm breathing in some atoms that einstein breathed out the moment he put the last dot on his theory of general relativity but you're also breathing you're also breathing in the atoms that hitler Read out when he put the last dot in Mein camp. Hitler had bad breath, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so it's an amazing fact. And I, and I, and you know, if we had enough time, I could work through it. But Walpert gave an example, which is a very similar example that you quote, which is that, um, and you, this is your writing. Pour one glass of water into the sea. Allow time for it to be thoroughly dispersed through the oceans of the world. And that's probably maybe fifty years. Then scoop another glassful out of the sea anywhere. Almost certainly you will retrieve at least one molecule of water from the original glass. And it's true. I've argued that if you take a if you take a, a drop of a blood and put it in the ocean and pick the glass, you'll find later on a bit of your blood in, in, no matter where you are around the world. And and also pointed out that, that every time you, you take a drink of water, you're drinking in secretions. From virtually everything that's ever existed. and Which, I, by I, the
1: way, gives the light to homeopathy.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, but I do, I, I mean, it, it, it actually lends truth. My mother who passed away, one of the reasons we, we had to delay this because of the passing of my mother who had lived to a hundred and had a great life. But um, she used to say, don't touch that, you don't know where it's been. And she was right. <laughs> well, but in any case, so I would have given a long explanation. But Wolpert's explanation was perfectly clear. He just said that's because there are many more molecules of, in a glass of water than there are glasses of water in the sea. It's pretty clear. And I was blown away that he didn't need to do all the math that I did. And, and, but, but you use that as an example of the uncommon sense of science. That science can take us places where our common sense doesn't take us, and I, I love that. And I and I and it, it in. I used to work in museums a long time ago, and we call it the aha experience. Everyone has gone into a museum of any sort or anywhere. Suddenly, you see the world in a new way. Say, so I, I just it it boggles my mind. Um, but it, it's a new thing. So I wanted to ask. I've had that experience as a scientist, where I was sure something was the case, and then working through it. I realized something that I would never have thought was possible, that it would have seemed totally to defy any of my own common sense. And I'm wondering if you've had that experience. That was a long way of asking that question. Yes.
1: Um, well, not in a very big... Well, yes, let, let me give... I mean, w- w- an example would be the handicap principle, um, which is a theory of sexual selection. I already mentioned sexual selection. Um, things like Peacock's tail, uh, where... Um, Darwin just simply said that, that the reason the peacock has a huge great fan is that females like it, and so males with the bigger and bigger and bigger t- tails got got um, were more likely to pass their genes on because the females like them, and so genes for big tails got passed on um, but in um, some, in the 1960s, an Israeli biologist called Amot zahavi um, produced a radical new theory of sexual selection, which was called the Handicap Theory, and it it, it said that everybody agreed that that having a great big tail was a handicap, but we we all thought that it evolved in spite of being a handicap. So Harvey said it evolved because it was a handicap. Uh, The reason why females like it is that it is a handicap, only very, very tough Strong males can survive carrying this ruddy great handicap on their backs, and so they must be a good a good bet as a mate. And I and essentially everybody else in the field ridiculed the Harvey at the time because it seemed they were all very well saying uh, that it, that um, it it must be a good ma- a good ma- mate, but on the other hand, he it, it does have the handicap, and so it just cancels it out. And um, John Maynard Smith, the great John Maynard Smith, tried to model it and said it doesn't work. But then much later, my former student and now colleague and now indeed mentor, Alan Graffin at Oxford, produced a mathematical model uh, which showed that the handicap principle does indeed work. And so I had to uh, eat humble pie and say I was wrong it it part of the problem was that Zahavi was had a rather colorful way of put expressing things he would, he, he used he used anthropomorphic oh. uh language he said things like um if a, if a woman watches a, a a race between two two men and they come in as a dead heat but one of them is carrying a sack of coal on his back um she chooses him and, 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 oh. and, and so i think um anyway you, you asked me whether I'd changed my
0: mind, and that, that was one case where I had to change my mind and did. And particularly where something that seems... It's not just change your mind, something that seems like it's not common sense. Yes. Yeah. It turns out to be common sense. Yeah. And, well, and, not common sense, yeah, but it
1: t- but, but turns out to work. And now that Alan Graffin has done the maths and um, shown that it can work, I, I now... Feel it intuitively.
0: um, Exactly, and you know that's when I talked about earlier about how sometimes science leads to absurdity. What seems like absurd, sometimes though, the reason is you're thinking about it the wrong way. And so, people, when I've had debates with sometimes with religious people about, and and they bring up common sense. Common sense is okay, but it's overrated when it comes to science because common sense is based on our experience. Yeah, T. H.
1: Huxley said wrongly, I think. Science is nothing more than organised common
0: sense. It, yeah, but it, 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 it becomes common sense because it defies your expectations, and then once you learn it, you say, "Oh, gee, why didn't I understand that all along? It makes sense." But but common sense is not—it's certainly a first guide for a scientist. But but you learn that our experience is just an example of myopia. That the world is far grander than our experience, which is one of the beauties of science, because it totally. takes us outside our comfort yeah. zone. Yes, totally. And, and, and makes us uncomfortable, mm. which unfortunately in universities now is a bad thing. But it's the best thing that can ever happen to any of you students. And if you're never uncomfortable, you haven't learned a damn thing. Yeah, okay? yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, um, the the speaking. Well, actually, speaking of changing your mind, I want to ask you... There's a nice piece about the, the shelf... I think it was written in the 50th anniversary or 40th anniversary of the shelfish gene. And um, there are two things that I liked about it. I wanna, one I mentioned... One, you talked about eight fingers and Fred Hoyle. It was a lovely story. and, and A lot of our counting is done in, in powers of ten. And presumably it's because we have ten
1: fingers and we, and we um, learned to count using our fingers. And if we'd had only um, eight fingers... Um, we would have, instead of having decimal-based arithmetic, we would have octal arithmetic. Or if we had 16 fingers, we'd have hexadecimal arithmetic. And that makes com- com- computing, using computers, binary computers, much easier. So if you've ever, if you've ever done programming in a computer machine code, you, you have to learn to think in octal or hexadecimal. And so I think it was Fred Hoyle speculated that the same Fred Hoyle, Speculated that if we 'd been born with eight fingers, computers might have been invented a century
0: earlier yeah, I thought it was a wonderful question <laughs> but but that aside this is the kind of, I, I, this is the kind of question a journalist might ask, so I hesitate to say it. but but is there looking back on the selfish gene is is any of it particularly malmoded or more importantly what 's the newest result you know of in biology that, that relates to what you might, an idea in the book that that, that you you know, would have liked to have included back then if, you'd, if, it, if, it, if it had been developed. Is there such a thing, you know, one that comes to mind? The
1: funny thing is that um, because it's all about Darwinian evolution and the, and the central idea is that the unit of selection is the gene, that is the thing that goes through the generations, that is the, uh, the entity in the hierarchy of life which is potentially immortal, and therefore, there is a significant difference between those entities, those genes, which actually succeed in being immortal, and those that don't. And um, that, does, that property doesn't apply to anything else like the individual or the group or the species or the ecosystem. It's Only the gene has that property. And nowadays, we know a hell of a lot more about how genes work and what they do in development and uh, the whole... Fin- You don't hear the word genetics so often nowadays. You hear the word genomics. Um, And um, some people think that that ought to to have changed the selfish gene. But it doesn't at all, actually, because fascinating though it is, interesting though it is, it doesn't in any way change the fundamental point that that which is immortal, potentially immortal, is bits of DNA it doesn't have to be a gene as, as, a, as a unit in the way that a molecular biologist would understand it. But, but I think I, yeah, I said the—it's just uh, any, any length of chromosome which, which has the property of being replicated with sufficient frequency. So the, the book could have been called not the selfish gene, but the slightly selfish big bit of chromosome and the even more selfish little bit of chromosome. <laughs> probably wouldn't
0: have done so it's well. Not, not a catchy <laughs> title. Yeah. Okay. Let, 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 I want to move on to someone we both admire a lot, and you talk about um, Carl Sagan. And we both agree. I, I think The Demon Haunted World, uh, it, it, a can, as a, Science as a Candle in the Dark, it, is my favorite book of his. And it, it, it's, it's mine, sort of, yes. Yeah, and, and he, in there, he, he talks about um, the great thing about science. The, the great gifts that science has to offer is a baloney detection kit. And, and I'll read from, from your quoting him. <clears throat> I occasionally get a letter from someone who is in contact, which is interesting because he wrote a book called that, in contact with extraterrestrials. In invited, sources, that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. I'm invited to ask them anything. And so over the years, I prepared a little list of questions. The extraterrestrials are very advanced, Remember. So I ask things like, please provide a short proof of Fermat's last theorem or the Goldbach conjecture. I never get an answer. On the other hand, if I ask something like, should we be good, I always get an answer, almost always get an answer. Anything vague, especially involving conventional moral judgments, these aliens are extremely happy to respond to. But on anything specific, where there's a chance to find out if they actually know anything beyond what most humans know, there's only silence. And the baloney detection kit is what he talks about as science as a way of of using just that. It actually remi- when I read it, it reminded me. I don't know if you know this story. Groucho Marx, who I was am a big fan of, um, used to love to go up to, to um, um, uh, psychics. You know who can you know they always ask you. You go in and you pay money, and and they say ask you know ask me any question, and he'd say what's the capital of North Dakota. and they never get it right (laughs) but anyway um, that was his baloney detection kit and I thought it was a a nice convergence between Carl Sagan and Groucho Marx but um, more interestingly what about you know and people in spite of the fact that they're taken in have an innate trust of science Uh, something I once said and I've seen it as a meme now is is, uh, if you're choking do you want me to pray for you or do the Heimlich maneuver? <coughs> uh, and, and most people, you know, will say the Heimlich maneuver. We all know science is, is really the way to do things, yet somehow we don't have a baloney detection kit. I'm wondering why evolution didn't pro- seem to I provide wish, us naturally with a baloney detection um,
1: kit. Just on the Heimlich maneuver, there's a lovely story in, in an old people's home somewhere in America... One of the old people started <laughs> started to, going. started okay. to choke, and another old old man in the in the um, in the uh, old old people's home leapt up, and did the Heimlich ma- maneuver. And his name was Heimlich. It was Heimlich himself, um,
0: in in the old people's home. I think the only time he ever actually did it. Was, and, 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 <laughs> and that's where came, the name came from. That's wonderful. Yes. But why don't we have a baloney detection? Have you ever thought about that? Because why, why isn't science more natural? I, I mean, in some sense, we're all scientists. We're babi- as young kids, babies. We're all scientists. We explore the world around us, and we touch things. And if they're hot, we don't touch them again. But, um, but why, does, why does the pneumonia yes. become well, so... Well,
1: when a, when a plumber or an electrician has to diagnose, or a car mechanic is trying to diagnose what's wrong, they use... A Perfect scientific method and isolate. Yeah. Is, there, is this fault here or here? Seems to be here. Okay, let's narrow it down a bit, a bit further. Right, let's change this one and see what. That, so, we we all um, people who do that kind of job um, are using scientific principles all the time. Stephen Pinker has just written a book which I yeah. recommend. Yeah. came out this year called Rationality, which is a book about um, the rational and how. I mean, it's partly a manual on how to how to think rationally and he's very keen on Bayesian re- reasoning but he begins the book by talking about the San, I am to attempt to do the San um, um, hunter-gatherers in Kalahari and he says, he points out that they are superb scientists in, in making inference about the game that they're hunting and, and w- working out how to track animals and th- things like that so in many ways, we, we are innate
0: scientists. Yes. But we, um, are, we are susceptible to so much baloney, which is a central yes, part of the problem it, of the world. Yes,
1: we, we are. <laughs> uh, at, at somewhere else in the book, he, he says that, um, we quote somebody else as saying, we are not so much born scientists as born lawyers. Um, <laughs> b- born, born to persuade and argue and influence because we're social animals. And one of the ways in which we... Succeed yeah. in a Darwinian sense is to outwit, outmaneuver, outgeneral uh,
0: our rivals. Yeah, in fact, that that it's a great book, and I love that book. And I, I, I he and I did a, a talk, a, a podcast about it, actually. And yeah, and I think he points out from the point of view of evolutionary psychology, rationality is not always the best strategy. And 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 your, the example you gave is just a, a very clear yeah, one. Yes, persuade we are, we are your... social
1: animals, and and um, if you if you if you are surrounded by a, a group of of um, colleagues, friends, all of whom believe some kind of baloney, uh, like um, that that um, Trump really won the last election, yeah. um, then you you actually um, if you if you if you stand out against that. Then you lose face with your with your peers. You lose you lose prestige. You, you, you don't succeed in, yeah. in what really matters in, a, in in a highly social animal like Homo sapiens. Absolutely ill-named. Um, be- because uh, you 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 one way to succeed in, in a Darwinian sense is
0: to be accepted and admired by your social group. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I think it's it, that's I think that's the best possible answer to that actually. By the way, there are various people who are getting very antsy in the back of the room and probably some of the technical people because it was listed in the program maybe that we were going to go till about 8:15 with our religious discussion. I put that in just in case it wasn't interesting, but I'm enjoying it so we're going to go a little longer, okay? <laughs> but uh, um yeah. So and we'll, so we'll go till I so I say we stop. But, um, uh, but anyway, um, we, there's a, just a few more things I want to get. But one of your one of the conversations in there is with a joint hero of both of ours and a, a friend of both of ours, the late Christopher Hitchens, who we are both privileged to, to, to know, an honor and a privilege to know him. And I'm still amazed that he liked me. But anyway, um, that but there's a at the very beginning of the discussion which was some time ago obviously because he's been he's passed away a while ago you, you you ask him do you think america is in danger of becoming a theocracy and his answer was no i don't the people who who we mean when we talk about that maybe the extreme evangelicals who do who do want a god run america and believe it was founded on essentially fundamentalist protestant principles i think they may be the most overrated threat in the country now do you think he would have changed his mind today?
1: I never, I never try to guess what he would have thought. Yeah, about okay. Anything.
0: But do you think that the, that I mean, there was a, there was a time, and, and we were talking about this earlier together. I think, and I don't know if we did in public, but um, you know, we have both. I, I certainly spent a lot of my time thirty twenty years ago fighting the effort to remove evolution from the, or replace evolution in the public schools, whether it's or Probably. The first way I became known to the public at, at, was probably in that effort. I was upset that biologists weren't doing it, and so I, I, I started to speak out. But um, but that sort of... Well, no, sort of, let me... Let me say, but, <laughs> I'm, I met... I'm,
1: I'm, I met um, one of the lawyers on our side yeah. in the, in the, the um, Kits, case in... Kitz M- Miller? Kits, Kits, that's right, yes. Yeah, Kitz Miller, I think. Um, and um, after a conversation with him... Uh, um, he. I, he said, well, thank goodness we didn't choose you as an expert. <laughs> <laughs> and, and i tell you why. Um, it, it, it's because I would have, I, I, if I was being honest, I would have said, um, not only d- is evolution true, but there's no God. And, and then, that's not what you have to do if you want to win that case. Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> What what you should be what you should say and they got um, Kenneth Miller to come yeah, and say it. Ken Miller, who's a um, religious. Uh, was was um, evolution is true and you could have God too. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, so that's what they would have wanted me to say, and I and I would have,
0: well, I could I could have perjured myself by saying it, but, but, but yeah, no, but you wouldn't, no, Richard. Uh, you, one of the many things I love about you is that you say what you mean and you won't change that, and that's an important, very important thing. Yeah, but um, I I guess I want to ask you that question Yeah, because that aspect, that trivial aspect, not so trivial, but the effort to impose intelligent design in schools, that's kind of died away. We've won that for the most part. It still gets it rises every now and then, but in every high school district where I went, and from Texas to otherwise, we, we more or less won that. But in another sense, in terms of the impact of people who claim that... America's a god run country and that and that the and, and, and I say this in an objective way i mean you, you see you can 't help but watch the Trump rallies and see that 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 people are arguing that he is a, 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 been sent by God to help the country mm-hmm. and so I would argue that it is a greater threat than than Christopher would have. Thought. And it's and it's and I don't know where it's heading now. What do you? But well,
1: you could be right, and 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 it, it could be that 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 Trump is responsible for, for that. Although I don't suppose he actually believes in God himself. Oh, I'm sure he doesn't. Um, yeah. Uh, 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 I mean, he seems he's he's, he's a, an astonishing well, not he's not an astonishing phenomenon. The the fact that he cons people is an astonishing. Phenomenon.
0: Actually, there's a there's a I was reading not that I read the book, but I read, there's a New York Times excerpt from the book by. Um, Mike Pence, who talks about an episode in the last days of the administration, um, where at the end, and of course Trump was very upset with Pence and, and, and Pence said, but I will, I will play, you know, I pray for you. And Trump looked up and said, don't bother. Yes. (laughs) Which I think really, really represented his real ideas. Well, look, I want to, I do want to give people a chance to go to the bathroom before, and I'll talk to you about what's going to happen in a second. I should have said it at the beginning, um, Actually, I'll tell you now before we get to this last bit. You all have question cards. And at the beginning of intermission, we have four lovely, I think four lovely and wonderful, uh, um, uh, young people and other not so young people, um, uh, with ba- boxes that are going to be in the aisles. And if you can hand those cards in over intermission, I'm going to go through them and, 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 and we'll be able to do, answer your questions. But, um, but, but the last thing I want to talk about it's a little bit maudlin, the introduction, but I love, I, I love the, the, the epilogue of this book, which is something you said you'd asked to be read at your funeral. So could you read it? <laughs> not that this is your funeral. Well, I don't want to suggest that. <laughs>
1: um, it, it may be too well known. It's, it, it's the opening paragraphs of my book, Unweaving the Rainbow. So, so, um,
0: well, not, let's assume it, not everyone's read it. Okay. Where oh, you need your glasses? I mean, I can read it, but I like to no, of no, you no, read it better.
1: We are going to die, and that makes us the lucky ones. Most people are never going to die because they're never going to be born. The potential people who could have been here in my place, but who will in fact never see the light of day, outnumber the sand grains of Sahara. Certainly those unborn ghosts include greater poets than Keats, scientists greater than Newton. We know this because the set of possible people allowed by our DNA so massively outnumbers the set of actual people. In the teeth of these stupefying odds, it is you and I, in our ordinariness, that are here. We live on a planet that is all but perfect for our kind of life, not too warm and not too cold, basking in kindly sunshine, softly watered, a gently spinning green and gold harvest festival of a planet, What are the odds that a planet, picked at random, would have these complacent properties? Imagine a spaceship full of sleeping explorers, deep-frozen, would-be colonists of some distant world. Perhaps the ship is on a forlorn mission to save the species before an unstoppable comet like the one that killed the dinosaurs hits the home planet. The voyagers go into the deep freeze, soberly reckoning the odds against their spaceships ever chancing upon a planet friendly to life. If one in a million planets is suitable at best and it takes centuries to travel travel from each star to the next, the spaceship is pathetically unlikely to find a tolerable, let alone safe haven for its sleeping cargo. But imagine that the ship's robot pilot turns out to be unthinkably lucky. After millions of years, the ship has the extraordinary luck to happen upon a planet capable of sustaining life, a planet of equable temperature, bathed in warm sunshine, refreshed by oxygen and water. The passengers, Rip Van Winkles, wake stumbling into the light. After a million years of sleep, here is a whole new fertile globe, a lush planet of warm pastures, Sparkling streams and waterfalls. A world bountiful with creatures darting through alien green felicity. Our travellers walk entranced, stupefied, unable to believe their unaccustomed senses or their luck. I am lucky to be alive, and so are you. Privileged, and not just privileged to enjoy our planet. More, we are granted the opportunity to understand why our eyes are open and why they see what they do in the short time before they close forever.
0: I love that. I think that's worth an applause. (laughs) Uh, I uh, I asked you to read it because it's a lovely statement and I I wanted to hear you say it, and and I think I wanted the audience to have the opportunity to listen to you read it. Originally I was going to take off on that as a chance for us to talk about aliens and such. But we, we have gone 15 minutes over, and I, I do want to give people an answer to that. But I just want to say that I want to, that, that notion of our luck is, I think, what, it, what I want to leave as a central part of our dialogue here, but also what, I, what the foundation, the Origins Project Foundation is all about. The, the incredible luck that we all have to be able to ask these kind of questions, celebrate them together, people like Richard... Talk to each other about it is, is really what makes life worth living, and and I feel particularly lucky that you're all here, and I know that we're all very lucky that that sperm was made you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. So you have a, a, an intermission, uh, and and please put your questions, and Richard and I'll be happy uh, to answer them. And thank you very much for being here. Thank you. I hope you uh, enjoyed watching the dialogue between me and Richard at the Orpheum Theatre in November for the Origins Projects Foundation first uh, public event. While you're watching, I uh, shaved my beard. Uh, and in any case, uh, the, this our dialogue was followed by a... Q and A, and we're going to make that Q and A available—the video of that Q and A available—uniquely uh, for our paid subscribers for the next month, and after that, we'll make it public. Uh, to just to thank you for your support for us. So, I hope you enjoyed the dialogue, and I hope uh, some of you will become paid subscribers to see the Q and A session, which was quite interesting. Um, but to all of you, thanks again for your support and interest in the. Uh, Uh, Efforts of the Origins uh, Podcast and the Origins Project
1: Foundation.
0: I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. This podcast is produced by the Origins Project Foundation, a nonprofit organization whose goal is to enrich your perspective of your place in the cosmos by providing access to the people who are driving the future of society in the 21st century, and to the ideas that are changing our understanding of ourselves and our world. To learn more, please visit originsprojectfoundation.org.